Hey everyone, it's Will and James here. Welcome to the Pure Sport Project. We want to jump into the minds of people we find inspiring from all walks of life. Bringing you their stories, lessons learned along the way, and future plans. So tune in for some of them wholesome yarns. All right, welcome back to the Pure Sport Project. This week we are joined by Sammy Kinghorn, but we're also joined by Tom McDonald, one of the new recruits at Pure Sport. Normally we've got Will, but Will's currently out in New York. He's doing a few bits out there, but he's also done a New York run club on Saturday, which was kind of cool. But firstly, I'll let Sammy introduce herself. As always, we don't want to do the guest a disservice and butcher all the accolades and achievements they've got. So Sammy, over to you. If you want to do a little introduction, let the listeners know who you are, maybe how long you've been with Pure Sport, anything and everything that you want to share with us. Thank you. Yeah, um, I actually never know what to say about myself, but I'm Sammy Kinghorn. I'm a wheelchair racer for athletics for Team GB. I've been competing for about nine years now, which seems like a very long time. I've competed at two Paralympic Games, World Championships, um, been world champion, had world records. It's been quite an exciting career so far, but hopefully still lots more to go. And I've been using Pure Sport products for a few years now. I think I first started using it just before I went to the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Um, and I've been an ambassador for a little over a month, maybe, just coming up for Yeah, nice. Which products do you use? You've been using them for a while, eh? so you're probably using them when we were just CBD, but now we've got a, a range of other products, but what are your favourites? Yeah, so I, I started using them because I was like, I'm not the best sleeper and like I've just got like the most overactive brain and the best imagination that you can think of. So when I'm trying to go to sleep at night, I was just really struggling to kind of like settle myself down and I was just trying to find something. The best thing I found for me was getting into a routine. And so I just kind of thought, right, I start using some CBD products just as my wind down to get ready for bed. And I found it really, really helped. So I used the oil um, and then I started using the BAM after I found like the oil was helping a lot. I looked into a little bit more and started using the BAM as well. Not long after, which like really helps like after a really hard training session, it just seems to help the DOMS a little bit more, help recover a little bit faster. Yeah, nice. What would a, a normal training session be like? Because obviously what you do is a bit different to what like everyone else would do as like a normal training session. So yours is quite a unique story. Can you walk us through like a normal or a training week, actually? Let's go through the whole week of, of what you do. Does it change throughout the season? Yeah, yeah. My, my training changes a lot. And I think, as I said, I'm part of athletics, but I think when you hear that I'm a sprinter and then you actually hear how many miles I do in a week, you'll probably be like, that's not a sprinter for athletics. But in wheelchair racing, it's definitely probably more like cycling than it is like running. I think we can do a lot more miles than a runner can because the impact isn't going directly up through our joints. You know, the chair is taking a lot of the impact. So through the season, I probably do about 60 to 70 miles a week. And then through the winter, I'm doing upwards of 100 miles a week. I do two sessions a day, six days a week and get one day off. And I do three gym sessions. So a Monday, a Wednesday and a Friday is a gym session and a chair session. And Tuesdays and Thursdays are either a double chair session or I'll do like a skier session. Something a bit different to kind of spice it up a little bit. Sometimes I do like speed ball, trying to get my fast twitch fibers going. But my typical sessions on rollers are a lot of intervals, long intervals, short intervals. I would do something kind of like you know a mile warm-up five ten minute warm-up then three sets of 12 one minute on 30 seconds off so a lot of high intensity interval training is kind of what I do but it's I really enjoy doing that kind of training I find it really hard when I've just got like a an easy 40 minute push I get 
pretty bored doing that. So I quite like the intervals. That's some serious mileage. That's just so I don't realize for a sprinter, well, like a hundred miles in a week is crazy, crazy. And that would be a mixture of like on the track. I know you mentioned rollers. Is that like I can picture it in my head? Like the wheels would just be on rollers. You'd be stationary, but the wheels would be moving underneath you. Yeah, it's exactly just like a bike would have, um, you know, you have like a spin bike, you have stationary. So it's just on a roller. So we can train indoors if the weather isn't as good. I guess, yeah, the, it's easier to do a lot more miles, especially if we go out on the road, you know, part off the road what might be downhill. So, you know, you might end up, there's parts where you're not actually pushing that much. So it is a little bit easier to rack up the miles than it is to run. You know, I'm not actually having to keep going all the time. Obviously, uphills are absolutely dreadful because you've got yourself and a racing chair to push up the hills. But sometimes it can be a little bit easier. You know, if I do a 200 meter sprint on a track, I'll probably coast 150 meters before I have to actually start picking up my wheels again. So there is quite a lot of turnover. On that, Sammy, we were thinking earlier how was covid and like around the covid period when we weren't allowed out like how did your training change around that time yeah do you know what like i think covid was obviously such a hard time for a lot of people but i was almost really lucky that i was living in glasgow and i decided everything obviously was just shut down you know i wasn't going to be able to get out and about in glasgow as easy as i was able to before and all the gyms were shut everything was shut so i decided actually to go to my mum and dad's down in the Scottish borders. So I moved back into my mum and dad's after moving out after about four four years, which I was a little bit dubious about and a bit worried about how the relationship might have changed from moving out when I was 18 years old and how much space I was going to be getting. But you know, I was, my mum and dad had a gym in the garage and living on a farm in the middle of nowhere meant that I could still go out and train. And I actually felt like I got to really enjoy some quality time with my family because most of the time nowadays, the only time I see my family is when they're in a stadium watching me or they've travelled out to see me and you don't always get to spend a lot of time with people. But my dad spent so much time on the bike cycling with me, so we would just go out on the roads and, and do a lot of training there. And When I first started the sport at the very beginning, obviously my sport's very expensive and I wanted a set of rollers so I could train and my dad's a typical farmer and was just literally like, okay, right, we'll get you a set of training rollers. How much are they? And I was like, £1,200. And my dad was like, absolutely not am I paying for that so he built me a set out of a combine harvester him like the rollers in the combine harvester so like that's what I trained on through lockdown was just like these handmade rollers and my dad was just like wouldn't buy me some so he just made me some so they're extremely hard so I feel like I got a lot of strength through um through COVID just training on these ridiculously heavy hard rollers yeah nice so those rollers link up to like a computer and you get data from it I guess if they're 1200 pounds they probably do but the combine harvester ones maybe maybe didn't or do they like they measure the speed or do you just kind of go by feel so i just have them i use a garmin and just have like a speedo linked onto my wheels so it's not actually attached to the roller or anything so it just like tracks my actual wheel and the turning in my wheel so i can always see but i think that helps a lot because like i'm a very visual learner and i like to be able to see so for me to be able to see the speed i'm going how long i can hold it for and the distance and things is something that encourages me quite a lot i find it quite difficult if i if i was just pushing just in feel i would definitely find it a lot harder if I can see how hard I'm working because I find it really good like if I've got an easier push I'm not great at sometimes doing a recovery push I find that quite difficult but if I've got like my Garmin on or I've got something on that's like reading my heart rate then I can kind of judge it off that and be like right I'm working too hard your heart rate's 170 it's meant to be an easy rule you need to slow down a little bit so like I can kind of judge off that and I find that a lot easier to do it. 170 for a recovery role? Yeah I get a bit excited sometimes. Jeez 170 I was like <laughs> that's like my max. Maybe I'm just not actually that fit. (laughs) 
So you mentioned earlier, you mentioned about getting into the sport. Can you walk us through like how you actually got into the sport? Like, how did you discover it? How did you discover that you were very, very talented at it as well? Was that kind of a shock or were you expecting to be good at it? Yeah, so I guess my journey into sport is very, is very different to a lot of people's. I wasn't born with a disability. I was born able-bodied, had like the best childhood, brought up on a farm, so much space to play. I wanted to be a zoologist growing up. That was like my dream, my ambition. I don't think I ever was really aware that I could be a sports person. I, I never seen that as something I could be. I always loved sport, but more because I think on all my school reports, I was a bit of a social butterfly. So I, I loved making friends. I loved meeting new people. So I think sport was an easy way for my mom and dad to tire me out and stop me um, talking as much at home, would just send me into groups and go and play sport and tire me out. Um, so I done, my mom and dad gave me every opportunity as a child. I played every sport, I'd done everything. I played rugby until a boy dislocated my shoulder. My mom decided that I needed to do ballet. So I wasn't very good at ballet. And then I'd done hockey and I'd done, I literally just done everything. My mom and dad, yeah, were really good at giving me every opportunity, but it was never something I knew I could be. So it, was, it wasn't the dream that I had as a child growing up. And then when I was 14 years old in the 2nd December 2010, my kind of whole life was well and truly flipped upside down. It's strange because I still have, I still remember every single moment of my accident because I was never knocked out at any point. And I was literally conscious throughout the whole thing. So the day started, I remember we had more snow than I'd ever seen before in my life. On the farm, we had like seven foot, eight foot drifts of snow. My dad was really struggling to keep animals alive, to keep the farm going. And I was meant to be doing my exams at school. My friend has come over to study. All our exams have been cancelled. And I was thinking, this is the best thing. Like, I'm off school. My best friend's been snowed in at my house. This is great. And I'm just getting to wake up every morning and go and help my dad on the farm. Like, this is literally a dream come true for me. So my dad had come and shouted at me in the morning. Um, I was 14 years old, so I probably slept till 12. And my dad's like, can you come help? You know, the dogs are, are snowed in. We need your help. And I remember going out that morning and, and me and my friend just helped my dad. And the dogs had run out of dog food. So we walked down to the farm and we're like, right, we'll get, we'll get more dog food. And we're walking back up and I was talking to my friend. And my dad started to drive behind us in a forklift. And I was just being a typical annoying 14-year-old. And I started to walk in front of him and slow him down. And my dad was beeping his horn. And we we're just kind of having a laugh. And I was just being annoying. And my friend and I walked off to the side. And I genuinely have no idea why. But I decided it would be a good idea to jump onto part of the forklift. And... So it was a forklift with like the bucket and I jumped onto like the joining at the end of the arm. It's really hard to explain it, but yeah, like the end of the arm of the join, I, I jumped onto it in there and there's like a little ledge and I sat there and I thought my dad had seen me and I thought I was just showing off. I was having a laugh and then it became pretty apparent very quickly that my dad hadn't seen me. I remember feeling like immense amount of pressure on the back of my neck and watching dad like bring the bucket down. And I thought, like to start with, I thought he was joking. So I remember doing like this hysterical, like, oh, ha, 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 like this panicked laugh, just thinking, oh, he's just like, he's just having a, my dad is quite, he took things too far quite often as a child. And, and I was always like, oh, he's just joking, he's just joking. And then he started to lower it and lower and lower. And I was like, oh my goodness, he's not joking. And I remember the first feeling I felt before I felt pain, before I felt scared or anything else was, was guilt. I was genuinely I was so annoyed, I was so angry at myself because my dad is a real strong believer in life can be very short, life can be very long. So why would you spend any of that time doing something that you don't enjoy and being a farmer's hard work? And my dad loves what he does. You know, he goes out every morning and gosh, you know, some years it's it's the worst farming year. You see him like really upset about animals dying or 
having a bad year of crops and it just never puts him off he, he loves it you're getting up at 4 a.m and starting his day at 4 a.m is crazy to most people but my dad he loves it and he, he loves what he does and I thought in that moment that I'd ruined this whole for all this this whole life that he built for himself I've, I've ruined it in this moment and I was always taught never to climb a machinery and why have I done this was so annoyed I just remember feeling the guilt and like the pit in my stomach just so angry with myself and then I remember just closing my eyes and thinking well you're going to die now your dad's going to lose his job and he's going to lose his daughter like well done you like you've absolutely fucked this one <laughs> like why have you done this I remember closing my eyes and just taking a deep breath and then watching dad as the shovel hit the snow and my head was like in my groin like I was squeezed down that tightly I heard my back pop and I just closed my eyes and then Somehow I opened them again and, and I remember seeing light and this like piercing bright light when his dad started to bring the bucket up again and I was like, right, I'm alive, I need to get out. If I'm going to get out, like I need to get out now. I was aware that I'd lost a, quite a lot of stability through through my back. I knew, I knew that I was a bit floppy. I remember I could, couldn't could feel my legs, but I could still move them. I remember like swinging them and being like, right, okay, okay. There's, I knew there was something, but I just didn't really know what was happening. So I like slid myself off. I jumped off and I started to run. I mean, I started to run forward. I knew I had to run forward and left so dad could see me. And as I ran, I slipped and I fell. And I remember lying there on the ground and it felt like I had like pins and needles and cramp running all the way up and down my legs. And it felt like my toes were moving individually and all my muscles just were like tensing. And then um, they stopped and that was the last time that I felt my legs. I think in that moment, I, t- I knew I'd broke my back and I knew that I wasn't going to walk again. And I don't know why I knew I'd never met anyone that had that happen to them. I wasn't a kid that watched a lot of television. And I didn't. I just knew. I knew that I had really hurt myself, but I didn't really know what that was going to mean for the rest of my life. When I was taken to the hospital, I remember lying in the hospital bed. I felt like I'd been left there for hours. I remember just being like, right, you're just going to have to start planning your life now. I think I, I was brought up with quite a lot of responsibility. I think being brought up on a farm, my mum and dad didn't have a lot of time to, to pick me up every time I fell down. You know, there was, it was quite a lot. Of, I learned responsibility quite young. I learned consequence very young. My mum and dad worked ext- like extremely hard to give me my brother a really good childhood. So, you know, if I had gymnastics or if I had sports, I had to be, you know, I had to make my team be ready. And if I wasn't ready, I wasn't going. You know, that was my consequence. And I did learn consequence from quite a young age. I think I was just very aware that I done this. I climbed onto this machinery. It's my fault. I have nobody else to blame. So I remember just thinking, right, what am I going to do now? And in that moment, I genuinely believed that I was going to be stuck in bed forever because I'd never met anyone in a wheelchair. So I was like, right, well, I could do an online uni course. I could invent something to help people like me. I've never been invented before in my life, so I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing. But that's what I decided I was going to do. I was just kind of like, this is my fault and I need to get on with it. And I remember my mum and dad coming into the room my mom just screaming and crying, my baby, my baby, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. She couldn't even bring herself to say what happened. And my dad couldn't even look at me. He couldn't even, couldn't even look at me. And I remember in that moment just thinking, I'm never blaming him for this. I never want him to feel any blame for this because this is my fault at the end of the day. And I need to pull my big girl pants and be like, right, what am I going to do next? This is what I need to do. And, and yeah, that was the worst feeling in the world was for your dad to just even feel this immense amount of guilt. And I just wanted to tell my dad, I'm this is my fault and I'm really grateful to be alive because it could have been a hell of a lot worse and I'm just really grateful that it wasn't a hell of a lot worse but yeah I spent six months in a spinal unit in Glasgow which was a mad life like I was 14 so I was sent I'd never been to Glasgow before sent two hours away from my mom and dad's home to this hospital where I was the youngest about four or five years so I grew up pretty quickly learned a lot of things a 14 year old definitely shouldn't be learning and 
I, you know, I met these people that I would never have met if it wasn't for the, the situation, the circumstance that I was in. I learned to be independent again. I think the best way I can describe to people that haven't had a spinal injury is like to have a spinal injury is, is like being born again, but you have all the added frustration that you've already learned it and you remember how easy it is. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's really frustrating because you remember how easy it is to stand up and pull your trousers up and you think, how the hell am I meant to pull my trousers up when I can't lift my arse off the seat? Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you even learn to pull something that when you can't make air? Like, it's just so strange. Everything is literally just learning and everything takes, it's like learning to ride a bike and falling off 110 times until you eventually get back on again. But you do, you do eventually get back on again. And then things that you thought, I'm never going to be able to do that. You do learn to do again. And, but it is incredibly frustrating. You know, I never really got upset about the fact that I was in a wheelchair, but I got really frustrated about not being able to do things. That I used to be able to do. That was the hardest thing to get over was was the frustration. Yeah, and then into sport, I went to the spinal injury games, which happens every year in Stoke Mandeville, which is where the Paralympic movement started was in Stoke Mandeville. So it's a really inspiring place to be, and it's all the spinal units in Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, and they all come together, and you compete against the other hospitals. And the way you win is that you try as many sports. You literally get a ticky sheet. And you just try sports and they tick off for you. And it's just a chance for you to see the sports and try everything. But I remember just being like, I couldn't believe that all these sports could be adapted. I just, I had no idea that this was possible. And I loved it. I had the best weekend ever. And I remember the last morning, my nurse came to wake me up and she was like, right, we're going to athletics. And I remember just being like, I can't run. I don't know what you're expecting me to do here. I don't really get what athletics and going down and seeing a girl in a racing chair and I was like I was speechless and I'm not speechless very often and there was a, a girl going around she was overtaking the runners and I'm just being like hey I'm gonna be faster than I was. I'm gonna be better than I was before and she was like really fit she looked after herself and her chair looked really cool and by that time I was 15 and being cool is literally the only thing I wanted and the only thing I cared about and obviously image is a massive thing and my image had changed a lot and I've seen this girl that was really strong her shoulders looked really good and she was really lean and she was and I was just like yeah like I guess like seeing is believing and I remember just seeing her in that moment and just being like wow you know that's amazing and that's something that I would like to do not knowing that I could be that that could be my job still in that moment having no idea that that could be my job but just thinking that's something really fun and I always loved sport before so I'm sure I'd love this and probably wasn't until I'd done it for a couple of years and I was selected for my first ever like major competition which was Commonwealth Games in Glasgow it was probably the first time that I was like hey maybe I could do this maybe is this a job this hobby is this a job it was probably the first time that I was like this is really cool and I'm incredibly lucky that's an incredible story that honestly that was so interesting to listen to and we appreciate that you've been so open and honest and just kind of walked us through every step of the way. Like you're a very positive person and you seem to be very positive through the whole process of what happened. Was there ever a time during that? Because I think you said you were in hospital for quite some time. Was there ever a time in there where you had some like negative thoughts or was it positivity from the start? I think when I was in hospital, it was quite difficult to feel sorry for yourself because you only had to look around to see someone that was paralyzed from the neck down and it's pretty difficult to lie there and say gosh I'm this is so difficult that I can't move my legs but I can still move my arms when you're looking at someone that's breathing through a tube 
So I think to them six months, I don't think that's fair. Like I'm not saying that that's, that's not fair and I didn't deserve the chance to feel sorry for myself because everyone deserves the chance to, to mourn in their own feelings. But I found it really, really difficult to feel sorry for myself in that moment. And so it probably meant that I didn't have that chance to kind of say, you know, this is pretty shit and this is rubbish and this isn't the life I kind of seen for myself. So I think it, yeah, I, I kind of just masked it all. And I think it wasn't until I left hospital, the first time that I remember getting upset and crying was I was going on a night out with my friends and I remember putting a pair of heels on and my ankles just like flopped. And I remember just like taking them off and I threw them and I was just like, I'm not going, I'm not doing that. Like, I was just so upset, so distraught. And I think it was because it was the first time that I'd seen myself different. When you're in a spinal unit, you're the same as everyone else. Like everything's, everything's adapted. You can get around everywhere. Everything's set free. Everyone's kind of pondering to you. Everything's about you. So in the time in hospital, no, it, yeah, I didn't really get that chance to sit and go, hmm, okay, this is quite difficult. It was just kind of like, Right, you need to do this to be able to get onto the toilet. You have to do this to get into able to get. You're just always like aiming for something and doing something, and then yes, you're seeing lots of people around you that are struggling a lot more than you are. So you you don't have that time. I don't think it's until you get out into the real world and you realise that the world is very inaccessible and not everyone's kind, and you are going to have to adapt. And I think that's when I found it hardest. It, it wasn't the first few months when I had my accident that was the hardest. It was probably the year or two after. When it was like, right, okay, things are going to have to change. I'm going to have to change the person and I'm going to have to learn to accept myself. Yes, I'd be, I'd be silly if I was just like, oh, it's a breeze. Every day of my life, I've felt positive and happy. And it was just so easy to get over because it's definitely not like that. I think even if you haven't had an accident and you haven't had anything like what's happened to me, there's never every day is a breeze for anyone. There's always hurdles in, in everyone's life. Do you still get those frustrations now or have you kind of experienced everything and overcome everything or are there new things that pop up that frustrate you maybe? Obviously this happened in 2010, did you say? Mm -hmm, yeah. And it's been 12 years since then. Have things progressed, like you say, like a lot of the world is not as accessible, but in those 12 years, have you noticed that things have improved or is there still things that really frustrate you? Yeah, I think as, um, for me, as I'm getting older, it changes. Like when I was 14 I was really upset that I couldn't get up to the top floor of flat to go to a party and then now I'm like you know I'm 26 it's it's like oh I'd really like to go for a walk along a beach it's you know it, things change as you get older the things that you wish you could do because you change as a person and the things that you would like to achieve change I think I'm probably quite lucky in the generation that I'm in you know we are trying to change the world and we're trying to make things more adaptable and people more, people are a lot more accepting but I definitely think there's still quite a long way to go I think like I found I remember like in the world of dating that was mental like people the people say the most inappropriate things and it used to blow my mind just like I really pray for a girl in a wheelchair and I'm just been like for a girl in a wheelchair right okay yeah. that's a really yeah. strange thing to say so yeah there, there's still those things that I'm sure can change and people definitely can change but I think I am probably very lucky that most bars and clubs and most restaurants do have like a lot of accessible features and if not people are really happy to help I found it really difficult to ask for help at the start when I used to go to the supermarket it used to like the first thing I'd pick up would be a cucumber it was really easy to like knock things off the top shelf with a cucumber and I'd be like, instead of just asking for help, I'd just like always buy a cucumber. And I was just like, well, this will, I'll take this round with me and I'll just, if I need something. Or like the amount of times I would just leave without something that I wanted. Whereas like now I'll just be like, excuse me, can you please grab that for me? Because I think, gosh, everyone needs help sometimes and it's okay to ask for help. Like you're being ridiculous. Like it's fine to ask for help. But 
I think sometimes that's difficult because nobody wants to be seen as as though they need help or as though they're weak or anything like that. And I think it's it's such a silly thing because everybody needs help, you know, whether they've got disability or not. Sometimes everyone needs to ask for help and that's okay. What's probably the, the biggest thing that you've had to overcome during this time? Like what was like your your biggest like realization and things you just had to completely overcome and how did you adapt to that? It's probably the way my body looks. I think that was quite a difficult thing. I think being 14 and 50, like, or 15, when I was going through it, you know, I lost like all the muscle in my legs, like straight away. And images was a massive thing. And I think, although I say I'm in a great generation, I'm also in a horrible generation where social media is one of the biggest demons. And you see a lot of people with like incredible bodies, whether they're edited or not, you don't know that that's what you're seeing. And I think that's something I have quite struggled with, especially since I've got into sport as well, that my upper body is getting larger and larger and then my lower body is getting smaller and smaller which is perfect for sport and it looks great when I'm in my racing chair but then I see a photo of myself every now and again I go what's a strange body shape what's happening there why are your arms so huge and I think that's been something that I've had to accept as an elite athlete I think disability or not though I think if you're doing professional sport if you're a professional sports person your body has to be the the way it has to be for performance and I know lots of like endurance runners and things that wish they were bigger or um, or sprinters that wish they were smaller but they they have to be that way to to achieve the things they want to achieve and I think yeah probably my my body image has been something that even just still to this day you know it's still something that I struggle with and I think that's something I want to get better at I want to be able to look in the mirror and go no no, this body has been amazing and done amazing things and been through a hell of a lot actually I'm very proud of the body that I'm in and I want to be I want to feel that way every time I look in the mirror but it's definitely not the way I always feel and I think yeah I think that's probably most people feel that way hopefully <laughs> yeah the old pursuit of performance over aesthetics and yes. yeah and then it's, it's I really like how the world now is celebrating what people's bodies can do rather than being like you know you've got to be this particular size or whatever and it's like the whole like strong is the new skinny and stuff like that and people just going after a healthy fit and strong body rather than being Mm -hmm. like right you have to be you have to look a certain way because I just don't think that's a healthy mentality to have whereas going after performance especially at the level that you are it does require a certain level of aesthetic to be able to produce the force for such a long period of time. Yeah, definitely. I think I remember when I first had my accent, so like my injury level is just above my belly button, which means that like my lower core doesn't work. And I remember my doctor telling me that I was going to end up with a para belly. At 14, I was told I was going to end up with a para belly. And I don't know if you know what that is, but it's pretty much just like, I don't know, like a little pot, like just a little belly because the muscles don't work around it. And I remember just being like, absolutely not. I'll do crunches all day. <laughs> How do you do it? This is going to, and I, that like played a massive part in like my recovery. Cause I remember just overthinking everything that I was putting into my body and really worrying about ending up with a power belly. And that's definitely something that I'm so glad that I have overcome now. And I know a lot of people that have spinal injuries, that's something they really worry about. And it's really sad and scary that people might be either not eating enough or trying to control everything around them to make, make them not appear to have a power belly when it's just something that, you know, your muscles don't work there and you kind of need to accept the way that your body is and just be thankful for the body that you have. Now, Sam, I was going to say you touched on it earlier about what you want to achieve and like we'll come on to that in a little bit about your future events, but let's talk about what you have achieved. Like you've been so inspiring and you've done so much in your life and Tokyo world records. Like, can you talk us through those and your experience, how you found them, how they all were? Yeah, it's crazy. I think um, I still feel like a newbie in the sport and I don't think I am anymore. And that's really quite sad 
But my first major event was the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014. Um, I was 18 years old and I remember being really excited. I remember getting my kit for the first time and I think I literally made everyone that came into the house watch me try on every item of my kit and applaud me as I came into the room. And I still do that now. But um, yeah, I'm so excited. I remember going to the village and that like, Usain Bolt's in the village and like the royals then came in. So like, you know, I'm just being like, this is mental. And, like this food hall that's open 24 hours a day and it crazy it's a crazy world going to like a major like the commonwealth games or paralympics when there's like an actual village it's so mad like a multi-sport event and and then i remember the the morning waking up before my race and i spewed all morning like all morning and i remember being like i'm ill like i think i need to go home like i'm really ill and my coach was just like you're just nervous and i was like nervous i've been spewing all and he was like no no you're just nervous and i was like i've never been this nervous before like this is very strange and yeah, when I raced, came fifth. And there's a photo of me crossing the line. I literally looked like I won it. Like, I was just like, yeah, like, I literally, I just had the best time. Like, I had the best time. As soon as the gun went, I, you know, I forgot that I was incredibly nervous and I'd been sick all morning and um, I loved it. And that was like the moment where I was like, oh gosh, this is an incredible feeling. Like, look at this stadium of 60,000 people cheering me on. And it genuinely didn't matter that it, that I came fifth or first or last. Like, that was amazing. That was an amazing feeling. And then went on to to compete at the Paralympic Games in Rio, and I think Rio was like a massive turning point for me. I think because um, again, I was sick before every single race. Uh, I was sick every morning. I came fourth in my hun- no, I came fifth in my hundred meters when I probably should have come fourth. I got disqualified in my four hundred meters, and then it was eight hundred with my last race. And I think I was ranked tenth in the world, and only eight make the final. So we were going to the heats, and my coach was just like, "Let's go and throw everything at it." And I did. And I remember tasting blood after the first 200 metres and going, oh gosh, maybe this, I'm probably not done this very well. <laughs> and I think I've got a bit hard. I think I got like a 12 second personal best. That was my first ever European record. And I made the final and then the final I came fifth. And I was so excited, like so excited. And I remember going to sit in the stadium with my mum my and dad and I watched the girls get their medals. And I said to my dad, dad, next year, the world champs are in London and I'm going to win a medal. And my dad went, you just came fifth. <laughs> and I was like, thanks dad to bring me back down to here and I think in that moment I realized that I was physically capable I'd trained I'd done all the hard work but mentally I wasn't there I didn't believe that I could at all like I was still petrified I was still idolizing every other girl in that start line and not seeing myself as good as them and I knew that that was the shift that had to come it was like just the believing that I can um, and I didn't I literally on the start line going oh my goodness oh my she's amazing oh my she's so much faster than me she's better than me she's constantly feeding myself all these negative connotations like the whole time that's all I was thinking was she's better she's faster oh my goodness she's amazing look at her look at her look how big her back like just everything was negative nothing was like you've done really well you've trained really hard you've only been doing this for three years you've done really amazing to get here is what I should have been saying to myself on the start line instead I wasn't I was just like you've been sick all morning you feel horrible you're nervous your mouth feels like you've inhaled the Sahara desert oh my goodness this is awful like that's all I was saying to myself and um, I knew that was something that I really had to shift and that winter I literally worked as hard as I could I watched my races back over and over again worked out where I needed to gain which was my start was like the biggest thing that I knew that I needed to get better at so I worked so hard on that and then my first race in 2017 I broke the world record and for the 200 meters which was like mental I think that was probably like my proudest ever moment my dad always says to me like if something exciting happens and um, phone me obviously they can't come watch me in every race and I was in Arizona and I remember being like 
4 a.m. at home. I can phone my dad. Phone my dad and he answers the phone and he goes, does this mean something exciting's happened? Does this mean you've got a personal best? And I was like, dad, I just broke the world record. And my dad was just bawling his eyes out, like absolutely bawling his eyes out. And I think, although it's an individual sport and of course I'm, I'm doing it because I want to achieve really great things and I love what I do. I love my sport, but I think my dad watching me do things, I think it helped him as well. You know, I'm never going to be able to take all the guilt away from him. He's always going to feel something being part of something that happened to me, something part of that, you know, changed your daughter's course of life forever. He's always going to find that difficult. You know, he's seen me in a lot of pain for a lot of weeks and he's, he blames himself for that. Of course he does. But I think when I achieve great things and when I'm smiling, and I'm happy, it makes him feel so much better. And I, that was probably the best moment of my life was being able to phone my dad and be like, dad, no one's ever gone as fast as me. That's mental. Like at that time, that world record had been standing for 12 years and I'd just broken it. And you're just like, that's crazy. Yeah. And then that year I, I became world champion in the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Stadium and gone on to compete in Tokyo, which was difficult. Like I found Tokyo really, really difficult. Obviously no crowds in that incredible stadium that the Japanese had built empty. Like it was a horrible feeling. You know, I won't lie and say that Tokyo was my favorite games ever. I found it really difficult. And I think I found it so difficult because my family are a massive part of what I do. And I probably don't do it for myself as much as I probably should. And I remember finishing and winning my first ever Paralympic medal. That should be the best feeling in the world. And looking up and just being like, right, glad I've trained five years to celebrate with no one. Like it was just a really, I found it really, really difficult, like a really difficult feeling. And I think that's why I loved like this this year's Commonwealth Games in Birmingham so much. Going out into a stadium and having 30,000 people, my friends and family there again, like that's why you do it. You know, that you want to make people proud and you want to show your sport and show it off in front of all these people. And it was incredible. I almost started crying. I went out and like everyone started cheering. I was just like, oh gosh, you're all here for me. And they're not just here for me, but that's what it feels like. And um, yeah, that was amazing. And yeah, I've been so lucky to compete in so many incredible countries in front of so many amazing people and achieve incredible things. And yeah, I've just finished this year's season. And then next year I've got hopefully world champs in Paris and then the Paralympic Games in Paris in 2024. Lots to look forward to. Yeah, nice. Do you still hold the world record? No. Oh my goodness. No, I got oh. taken off it this year. Tough. <laughs> By how much? Not very much, to be fair. I can't even remember how much it was. I'm really bad with that. People ask me how times and I'm not great at remembering my times. That's oh, not so very good. I would know that like better than my birthday. Honestly, I, I, <laughs> yeah. that, that is my start. I'm rubbish. It was a world record. But I think maybe if you have the, the crowds back again. Yeah. You could claim that, that record back again, eh? Yeah, but like, that's what, like, I think, so I got it, the, my world record taken off me in, in May. And I think, like, I came off the track and everyone's like, ooh, like, I think everyone thought I was going to be crying my eyes out. But I think everyone forgets that I've got a brother that's five years older, so I'm very used to getting beaten. That's not something that I'm not used to at all. So, like, I came off the track and everyone was like, oh, my goodness. And I was like, this is sport. This is how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be challenged sport's supposed to get faster and faster like that's just going to make me want it even more I feel like if I was just winning and winning and winning and it was just like I feel like I'd probably get bored I'd be a bit like well I don't know what I'm doing this for I'd probably start tra taking training a bit a little bit more easier if it was just like well I'm winning by a mile so no there's someone there challenging and someone there that's like it's beating me now you're like right okay I need to work really hard over this winter and come out next year and hopefully get them back but that's I think that's why I love sport because it's not like it's not easy and nor it should be. No, no one should be winning easy. It should be 
difficult and you should be testing your body and yeah I think it's amazing I think the power of sports is an incredible thing and I think it's something that I wish I'd learned as a youngster I think I really wasn't aware of the power of sport and how much it can help you like physically and mentally it's I think it's an amazing thing whether it's like elite or just for fun I think some mornings I wake up and I go it's raining I don't really want to go outside but then you get outside or you know you're feeling really grumpy and you get going and it's amazing the endorphins like how much they make you feel better and I think if you'd asked me at 13 years old like about that like oh if you go outside and go for a run you'll feel better I'd gone I don't think I will but you do you genuinely do you just go out you go out for a walk it doesn't have to be like full pelt and running hard as fast as you can it's just go out and get your body moving and you feel so much better and you meet people and I think yeah I do, do wish that was something that I was showing as a youngster you mentioned like your training and stuff and you train super super hard there's also I guess there's an element of the chair like the technology that goes into the chair I can imagine improves every single year what are the kind of key things about your chair that you you look to improve as well to kind of allow you to to go faster and for you to be able to express the training and the strength that you've built over, over your training periods what kind of things do you improve on your on your chair as well yeah, I think that was like the the big thing. Like, I have my, if you ask the company that builds my racing chairs, I'm probably the most problematic athlete because I feel like I, I go in and out all the time to check what they're doing and like measure. Yeah, I'm really annoying, but it's like wearing a pair of shoes. You know, like you don't want your shoes rubbing for the whole way. You know, I need to make sure that it fits me right, and it's it's right for me because you're very tight in your chair. You need to feel as one. Like it needs to feel like it's part of you. You don't want it to be snagging anywhere or anything like that. And I think after Rio, when I watched all the footage back. As I say, I noticed that the, it was my start was like the biggest thing that I was losing out on. One of the, like, the main things is like, it's, it's a power to weight ratio sport. Like it's, that's the idea of getting off the start line. You've got to be powerful, but you need to be able to shift the weight. And I am probably one of the heaviest on the start line. And I, that's because most of the girls that I compete against have had either had their injury from birth, which has obviously shunted their growth. So some of them are only about three foot tall, five foot nine. I can't physically be 30 kilograms like I, that's not going to happen unless I cut my legs off and I'm not really going to that straight I'm not going down that route I felt like yeah there's a lot of girls in my race that you know the wind blows and they're gone and it's a lot easier for them to be more powerful than their body weight whereas that was something I was like right I need to make sure that what do I have I'm, I'm really strong I had to have the weight behind me right so what can I do differently to my chair and um, I think the one thing in your chair like so I would always do like little short pushes to get my chair going because if you push down really hard, the front end would lift up. So I was like, right, I think what I need to do to shift my weight and use the power that I have is put all the weight down through the front of my chair. And that's something that changed. I changed. Um, I literally went to, to the company, Bromican, that they build my chairs. And I was like, right, we need to change the angle of the forks. And I made them build, like re, <laughs> like re-engineer and build the, the angle of the forks. That It's always been a more upright angle to, to slightly more slanted because I was just like, in my head, that would make the weight go through the front and it did and I was instantly pretty much one of the fastest starters in the world and I probably still am one of the fastest starters in the world but I think I love to be really in tune with my chair and I like to take it really seriously the technical side and I think it's a, a lot of people don't a lot of people will just send their measurements away and get a racing chair and hope for the best where is yeah I like to watch videos of myself pushing and be like right well what can I do here I watch videos of other people pushing and try and change it. I have mirrors all around my chair when I'm training on my rollers so that I can see every single stroke I'm a bit anal that sounds awful I am literally <laughs> it sounds like I'm the worst athlete to coach but I like to question things I like to question myself because I, I've never done a race and gone that was the perfect race and I think the day that I say that was perfect is probably the day I'll be like I'm probably done there's nothing else I can do this is the end of my career and there's still so much more I can achieve and so much more I can do. And racing chairs, yeah, as you say, like, I think as 
more interest is, is going into para sports and the more money that's going into the technology and, and racing chairs. You can now buy a racing chair for about 40 grand if you want to buy them. Feel free to take your hands in your pockets and give me 40 grand. But yeah, you can spend a, a lot of money on a racing chair right now. And it's scary. It's really scary that, you, you know, I don't want it to ever get to the point where it's just the people with the money and the sponsors that are getting these racing chairs. I think at the moment, we're quite lucky that it's not making a massive difference. You know, a lot of people are still achieving amazing things in, say, a cheaper chair, which is still probably about eight to ten thousand pounds racing chair. But it is scary that the more and more money that could go into it, it could send it in a direction that I don't think is the right way for it to go, where it's just the people that have the money that can afford the racing chairs that can then do the great things and go to the Paralympic Games. I hope it can always stay. It's just the talent, but we'll see how it goes. But it is exciting because then like companies like BMW, Toyota, Honda are now building racing chairs and they look really, really incredible and they look amazing. And it's exciting to see like engineers excited about racing and wanting to build it, build them and make them look really, really cool because I think there's a lot missing, like the aerodynamics and things. That there's a lot missing and there's a lot more that we could do and that is really, really exciting. Yeah, so there's marginal gains, right? When it's come down to like tenths of a second between first, second and third, any kind of weight you could potentially shave or the aerodynamics of the chair, all those kind of things really come into play. Yeah, it's massive. Like I went to a wind tunnel, so I used to always race with like my hair pleated just like down. And I went into a wind tunnel and they were literally like, so I was like, I think for years, my personal best was 16.22 for the 100 metres and the world record was 16.19. So close. I literally went into the wind tunnel and they were like, they were like, right, let's try this helmet. Let's move your hair like this. And then they tested it with my hair up and my hair down. And they were like, yeah, you would have broke the world record that day if you had your hair tucked up. <laughs> and I was literally, don't tell me that. Why would you tell me that? I can't do that again now. <laughs> like, I'm just like, it is, it's just like, it's the littlest things, you know, when you're traveling at that speed, the helmet can make such a massive difference. And my dad suggests that I just shave my hair off. But again, I don't think at that stage yet either. <laughs> just a swimming cap or something. Just pop that on, tuck yeah. it all in, be good, shave your arms. You'd yeah, my good. dad would also have me shaving my arms if he could. He was like, maybe you just need to like shave it. And I was like, I am not being a swimmer and doing the big shave down before every race. That sounds like an awful lot of effort. <laughs> I can't believe they told you that, that if you had just changed your hair differently, you would have broken the world record. That's some motivation yeah. though, if you go back again and just say, right, you're uh, yeah. flying. I know, I know. I've gone well under it now, so it's fine. But yeah, at the time I was just like, don't, no, that doesn't help. That doesn't make me feel better at all. <laughs> so what's next for you? What's in the next, what, 12 months? You said you just had the Commonwealth. What's next in the yeah. next 12 months? I think you said Paris. And then potentially the next like two to three years, there's another Olympics coming up in 2024. Yeah, the, the COVID thing confused me because Tokyo is what, 2021, right? And it was delayed a year. Yeah, so we'll have three years this year. Um, like this tournament, we had yeah, five, five between the last three between this one now. So it's amazing. Like, I think I'm really bad for almost like wishing my life away because I've like my year, I know what I'm doing in two years time like I know what I'm doing and I think it makes it come around faster I'm certain it does because I know what I'm doing next July I know I'll be in Paris competing for world champions next July and I guarantee I'll like I'll blink and I'll be like oh my goodness I'm in Paris and it's it moves really really quickly so I think just now I'm having some a little bit of time off I mean I've done the Great North Run yesterday that was awful and my arms are really really sore yeah it was good fun but so this time this kind of year I just kind of do what I enjoy like I love training Sometimes I don't love racing. I love racing when the gun goes. I'm still sick before every single race. So like the lead up, I hate. And I think, why am I doing this? I question my whole life choices. Why am I doing this? As soon as the gun goes, I love it and I know why I'm doing it. 
but I love training. Like I love it so much. And just now I don't really need to be training, but I'll, I trained this morning and I'll probably train again this afternoon because of how I just like, I enjoy that feeling. I enjoy, yeah, I'm probably addicted to it now, unfortunately, and this is now my life. But yeah, just now it's more just like doing what I enjoy, which is a really nice way to be. It's not, you don't have to pick apart or get really upset with every session if it hasn't gone well. You know, it's just kind of like a go to tr- training because I enjoy what I do, which I think is a really, really nice place to be. So yeah, a few weeks, it's just a little bit lighter, a couple of holidays, drink some wine, eat some cheese, have a really nice time <laughs> is what I'll be doing. And then yeah, start to build it back up probably end of October into my winter training block for next year. <laughs> Christ. And what are your expectations for those ones? Are you expecting to break some world records, world champion again? <laughs> yeah, obviously, you know, that would be amazing. I think, you know, I used to always say that I want to be parallel. Obviously, I want to be Paralympic champion. You know, that's what I want. I want to be Paralympic champion. But I also don't want to decide one day that I'm done and decide that before I'm Paralympic champion because I think I want to finish my career and be really proud of myself and that's like that's what I want above anything else you know I want to say that I've tried as hard as I can just because someone's better than me doesn't mean that I haven't done amazing and I think I used to put a lot of pressure on myself being like I won't ever quit until I've been Paralympic champion and I think I'm a bit more like now maybe I'm just getting a bit older that I'm a bit more like I've done amazing things I've traveled the world and this is incredible and I believe that I can get a lot faster I absolutely know I can I know I'm going to get a lot faster and I'm really excited to see where that might go but I obviously can't control what everyone else is doing at the same time but yeah obviously to be in the middle of the the Paralympic Games to be in the middle of that podium to watch my flag go up is is the dream and that's what I'm training for I'm not putting myself in the start line to 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 come forth you know nobody is there's no point putting yourself in the start line if you're aiming to come forth and putting myself in the start line to win gold but as long as I finish every race and know that I've given myself every opportunity to win gold you know I've, I've trained as hard as I can in every single session and I've looked after myself and I'm not injured and um, I'm giving myself that opportunity if I don't win gold I don't want to ever come off the track not happy with myself because I've, my life's been pretty mental and I'm really proud of where I am now and I just want to come off the track being proud I don't ever want to be the athlete that comes off the track upset about winning a silver medal because my dad will probably punch me across the face <laughs> but I just think you know I, I want to be proud of what I'm achieving because I literally can only control myself I can only control the controllables and that is making sure that I have trained as best as I can and that I am as fit as I, I possibly can be and hopefully you know that one day might win a gold medal in the Paralympic Games but we'll see well we hope the best for you as well we'll be rooting Thank for you, you. we'll be there sport. I reckon yeah maybe we'll be there <laughs> woo <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on here and telling your story. It was honestly fascinating listening to you tell it. I didn't want to interrupt a single time to say anything. I just wanted you to let you roll with it. And it was honestly, that was a really, really interesting podcast. And just thank you for your time. And thank you for being so open and honest with us. It was just fascinating. No, thank you for listening. I know I, I can ramble on. That's my father and me as well. I just ramble on. But no, thank you for listening to me. I appreciate we need to it. meet your dad, Sammy. We need to get him on. Oh my goodness. He's... You might not understand him. Well, no, actually, he's quite good. My dad's not, I think he's got quite a, a strong Scottish accent, but my mum doesn't have a strong Scottish accent at all. And then you put a camera in front of her and she's literally, oh, hi, then now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what's that? You've never done that accent before in your life. It's like she panics. <laughs> but yeah, no, mom, I think I'm really lucky that my mum and dad are incredible people. They're such lovely, amazing people. So yeah, yeah, you can meet my dad one day. <laughs> 
Perfect. Right. Well, thank you very much for coming on and for joining us this podcast. We can always link your your Instagram and if you've got a website, we'll link that below yeah. in the show notes. Well, thank you very much. Hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and we'll probably see you down here the next time on you're down on the 28th of oh, no, September. September, I know. We won't yeah. let people know what's going on, but you'll find out very soon. Very exciting. <laughs> Legend Sammy, thanks so much. Thank you. Yo, thank you, Pure Sport fan, for tuning in. As a valued listener, we'd like to offer you a 20% discount code site-wide on puresportcbd.com. Use the code PROJECT20 to level up your life. If you like this podcast, like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And remember, no stress, stay blessed, and we'll catch you next time.